You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 58. And today we're continuing to ask the question, what's the full story about Safety 1 and Safety 2, part two? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name is David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety Work Podcast. This week, we're continuing our discussion from last episode about the book Safety One and Safety Two. So if you haven't listened to episode 57, we'd suggest you go back to listen to that one first and we'll wait. Okay, Drew, let's dive into chapter three. So chapter three is called The Current State and it begins by restating the basic problem that Holnagel presented in chapter one that focusing on things that go wrong is limited. The chapter introduces a few new ideas about why it's limited. The first one is the idea of habituation. So he says that since things go right most of the time, we don't really notice what's causing them to go right, we just think of that as normal. And so we've got this sort of unexplored opportunity to understand why they're going right that we don't take advantage of because we're just not even paying attention until things go wrong. And I think, Drew, this is this idea in safety of complacency, that when things aren't going wrong, then then organisations and people within them become complacent. And I think, you know, in my view, this same mechanism that Eric's talking about here has prompted, you know, the ideas of preoccupation with failure, which is the first HRO principle, and then later reason when he first proposed chronic unease and Carl Weick with uh, collective mindfulness as a solution to overcome this complacency and accepting this, uh, that things not going wrong is just normal. We're just starting to sort of see these um, continuing overlaps in some of the ideas in some of the new view safety theories. David, to be honest, I'm not certain that I agree with that connection, but I don't have any textual evidence otherwise. So I, I think this is something where the book, at least at this point, is genuinely unclear what it would mean to focus on success. So one interpretation is this idea of preoccupation with failure or that the seeds of failure are buried in success. That even though we're successful, there are things going on that shouldn't be going on or that are warning signs that we could detect. The other way of interpreting that is that, no, 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 that's still safety one thinking. That when things are going well, we should be looking what is making them go well. Looking at what likes the mechanisms that are causing success and encourage those mechanisms. Um, now, I would have said previously that I thought that second interpretation was like the correct or canonical one, but I recognise that in fact Holnagel hasn't said that. All he's said is we don't study normal work very well and we get complacent about not thinking about the mechanisms. So I think either interpretation is really quite valid. Yeah, and I think, Drew, it's a, it's a good point because I started by when I thought about this, I've gone, habituation is a very cognitive psychology idea that I was like, why is this in a book about trying to understand organizations and, and understand safety because habituation isn't talking about what's right and what's what's wrong. So it's also, I mean, you could, if you got deeply, I suppose, theoretical in the psychology side, it's like things go right most of the time that we accept this as normal. Well, habituation is not about what happens most of the time. Habituation is like what, what happens all of the time. So it's maybe, maybe selected the wrong theory to, to link to this idea. So this is something that we're definitely going to come back to, David, is this is a particular habit in the writing style in this particular book, in that there are a lot of words that get repurposed away from even the original theory that generated that word towards a new meaning of the word. 
And it's a style which I think is unnecessarily confusing because it carries all of the old meaning of the word and all the old sophistication of the word. And as you said, you know, habituation comes out of this deep vein of theory about psychology. But actually, Holnagel is really just using it to say, uh, we don't tend to notice what's going on around us. We just accept it as normal, which is much simpler than the word implies. Yeah, and there's probably some of the, the bias in heuristics theory, even some of Kahneman and Tversky's work or something other that would have been better placed in, in this argument um, than what was chosen. But, but then he also introduces here, I suppose, for the first time in the book, this idea of workers imagined versus workers done. So this gap between how organizations prescribe work and how it's actually carried out. And he says that we assume that work is going well because of how it's prescribed. And then we, when we investigate accidents, we find out that it varied from the procedure or how we prescribed it. And we assume that this variation is the cause of the accident. David, I don't know if you noticed this, but the way Holnagel uses the terms work as imagined versus work as done is not exactly the same as I'm used to using them either. Uh, so work as imagined, uh, Holnagel explicitly says this is work as prescribed by management. So this is work as imagined, according to Holnagel, is how management think work should be done. And then work as done is how it's actually done. So work as imagined doesn't have any of those connotations of routines or representations of work or management's picture of what's actually going on. It's actually how management thinks work should be done, the prescription. Yeah, I think I just passed over this because it's sort of six, this book, six or so years old. And I think this one particular idea of workers imagine work has done has been thought about a lot in in the time since this book was published by Eric and also by by other authors, Stephen Sharrock at Eurocontrol and other people. And we've talked now about workers prescribed, workers done, workers desired, workers reported, you know, all, all of these different ways we think about um, the lens through which we're viewing work as intended or as performed. So I think this is an older not an older, but this is an earlier, which is older, I suppose, uh, definition of saying that, okay, work as imagined is what's in the policy, which is what management thinks happens and work as done is what, you know, the workers do. So I'm sort of used to that a little bit. So, so maybe that's an interesting warning for ourselves and for other readers, that even the person who first introduces you to an idea, their own ideas about that idea can evolve. So it's not like this book to, in 2014 is the authoritative source for Holnagel's views on Safety 1 and Safety 2, or Holnagel's view on work as imagined, work is done. People are allowed to evolve and update their ideas. So at this point, we've got this fairly simple picture that work as it's prescribed by management can be different to how work is done. And that if we assume that work is going well because of how we think it should be done, then anytime we investigate an accident, we're going to find out that work doesn't quite happen like that. And we're going to assume that that's the cause of the accident. And you know, the sort of many uses of the word assume there mean that Holnagel is suggesting that this could be a very faulty picture of what's actually going on. It could actually be that work most of the time is happening not as it's been prescribed. And in fact, that's quite successful and is working quite well. And so the cause of the accident is not that variation. The cause of the accident, if there is a cause at all, is something different. Yeah, I think, Drew, I really like that. The I really like the idea of performance variability when it comes to work. And and I suppose it's, it's, it's uh, again, safety is, safety is hard and complex because sometimes that variability of work is a source of, you know, adaptation that resolves conflicts and challenges and risks that emerge during that work. And sometimes that variation is a response to, as an adaptation to other pressures, goal conflicts and trade-offs, and it erodes margins for safety and leads to an incident. So it's, but it's, it's a gross oversimplification to, as, as Eric 
is pointing out here to say that if work varies from the procedure, then it's automatically unsafe. Chapter three is also the first time in this book that we get a sort of definition of safety one. So I think it's best if I just quote it directly. Holnagel says that safety one is a perspective, and he says that the perspective is safety one defines safety as a condition where the number of adverse outcomes, such as accidents, incidents, and near misses, is as low as possible. He then immediately redefines it, and he says that as low as possible is muddled and complicated because you know, what is possible? And he says it probably in practice means something like is reduced to an acceptable level. So the overall definition then is safety one defines safety as a condition where the number of adverse outcomes is reduced to an acceptable level. And I think Drew, like that, again, this is where I, I've struggled I've struggled with this the most, I think, in terms of safety one and safety two, like I think I mentioned last week, where if we're saying that safety one defines safety as a condition where the number of adverse outcomes is as low as possible or an acceptable level, but then, you know, my working definition of safety two is that if we, or Eric has said, if we focus on more things going right, then they can't go wrong at the same time. So my extension of that is the same extent. If more things are going well, then you've got the number a condition where the number of adverse outcomes will be as low as possible or at an acceptable level so i still can't get my own my own head out of this circular argument of saying is safety one and safety two pushing for the same eventual outcome well here we have that thing that holnagel has hinted at which is he said that success and failure are not two sides of the same coin so he's saying they're not the only two possible outcomes but he hasn't explained what he means by that. So if we had got to get a clear explanation at some point of what we can have other than success or failure, then we do have actually quite a clear difference that one of them is measuring failure, the other is measuring success, and one isn't just the opposite of the other because we've got this um, possibly a third category, possibly some overlapping definition in some sense. And I think this is what, what's being hinted at here is maybe Eric's early ideas around work outcomes being not just about safety. And you know he's recently published a book this year, in fact, called Synesis, where he's trying to recombine safety and productivity and cost and other outcomes of work. And I think here the argument, because he, he introduces some interesting arguments that don't really belong in the chapter about safety as a cost. So it's very hard to get investment in safety when you've already got low numbers and but it's easier to get investment in improving work. So I think where if I take your, I suppose maybe some of your interpretation there to the to the next conclusion would be that Eric would be trying to say that um, we actually just should make work better on a whole range of levels, including safety. And that's different to just trying to prevent safety incidents. So listeners, if it sounds like we're sort of struggling here to interpret a difficult verse in the Bible, David asked me before we started the podcast to avoid any sort of direct criticism of Holnagel versus criticism of the work. So let me just say that it is a feature that appears in writing that has come from Holnagel that you get very few, very clear definitions. You get all of this talk about what is not and what the alternative is, but you very seldom get a nice, precise definition of what Holnagel is claiming or persuading which is why we need to do this sort of heavy interpretive work to try to work out what is the implication and what are the hints as the implication by what are the other ideas around each idea. It makes it fairly frustrating for a reader, and it makes me very forgiving and sympathetic of people who are very harsh when they're talking about safety one and safety two. 
um, you, we say go and read the original, but the original is actually really hard to read at times. I think, Drew, you've talked about Deepity on the podcast a number of times before, and I think you can, because the language is quite accessible, it's not academic prose, it's not um, heavily referenced as a book, you can read through and go, yep, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense, makes sense. But what we've tried to do in sort of three episodes here is try to pick it apart almost page by page. And um, and that's when it gets actually really challenging, you know, to make sense of. So it, it comes down to this thing. I think if you're trying to write a book to explain safety um, to anyone who picks it up in 200 pages, it's um, you're always maybe going to be setting yourself up to have a very difficult challenge. There are some clear things, though, that Holnagel says about Safety One. I think this chapter does give us quite a good working definition of Safety One, even if the actual definition isn't very good. So he says that under Safety One, work is either safe or unsafe. And remember, you know, unsafe doesn't mean zero accidents. It means there's an acceptable number of accidents. So we've got these two states for work to be in. Safety One assumes that when work is safe, it's because it's operating as it's intended to operate, as it's prescribed. And if it's unsafe, it's because it's operating incorrectly. So I think that is a very clear worldview. And I think it is consistent with the way a lot of people think about and manage Safety One is there's these two worlds, there's the unsafe world, there's the safe world, and we're supposed to be operating in the safe world. There's two ways you can do that. You can detect when you drift out of the safe world, you can spot the problem, you can fix it, or you can hold yourself in the safe world by preventing work from varying or drifting. And I think, Drew, these are the things that we know. If you, you, do, an, you do an audit, maybe, or, a, or an investigation to work out the problems and fix them, or you you know, you have supervisors doing inspections and activities to try to make sure that work is happening in real time, how it's supposed to be. So so the mechanisms and practices we, we've seen in safety for all of our careers have, I think, lined up with with some of these, with this worldview that Holnagel is sort of painting about what he's calling safety one. And Holnagel also makes what I think is an original and very astute observation which is that if you have this worldview, there's an underlying theory about the causes of accidents. And the theory is that if you get an unsafe outcome, then it has to have been caused by something that is specific and unusual. So at least in principle, you should be able to trace back those causes and find that there's a difference between the things that caused the safe work and the things that caused the unsafe work. And a lot of our safety methods and mechanisms and practices are built on that assumption that we can sort of unpack those causes in advance and so prevent us going down the unsafe path. So there's two further points that are made about safety one in this chapter. The point that safety one is reactive. So this is a game mostly just sort of narrative. I'm not, we're not sure how much of some of this writing is about Eric's observations of industry versus Eric's interpretation of some of the historical safety theory. But I think I think what Eric's trying to do is just sort of talk about safety one as not being a sufficient picture of safety. So when he talks about things like risk assessment, Drew, I think he talks about risk assessment as proactive in a sense that it's happening before a problem. But he also then would say that um, or does say that the assessment of the risk is just responding to the identification of a problem in the business, which makes it reactive. So I think he's trying to say in safety one is where we're looking for these problems. It's always going to be reactive because it's always going to be trying to spot spot and understand the problems in the business. So I've just said that Holnagel has spelled out quite a fair description of safety one. I think the rest of this chapter, including this bit about reactive versus proactive, is where Holnagel starts to insert a bit of the rhetoric he gives when he's talking in public, trying to explain these ideas and trying to motivate the ideas. I don't particularly think that labels like reactive and proactive 
are descriptive in any sense. They're really just you. Reactive is bad. No one wants to be reactive. Proactive is good. Everyone wants to be proactive. So you apply the word reactive to everything you don't like. If you were using the words in any sort of technical sense, I would say that you could do safety one proactively by trying to anticipate, or you could do it reactively by waiting till things drift and then bring them back into line. I don't think safety one or safety two are inherently proactive or inherently reactive. Those are just sort of value-based labels. But Holnagel does also make what quite a legitimate point about justification of safety. This is really a sort of aside for the main argument. I just think it's really interesting and it belonged in the book somewhere. If you're always protecting against harm, then you can never justify the cost. It's really hard to make a business case for events that don't happen. And he said, this is what safety people always try to do. They try to say, well, yeah, sure, it's safety is costing you money, but think how much the accident would cost you. And the trouble is you don't know what the accident is. You don't know how likely the accident is. The accident hasn't happened. You've got no evidence of it. So you're justifying safety based on this non-event. Yeah, Drew, this is probably one of the real problems that I've had through my career. And I think it's almost at times an existential crisis for safety management because, you know, I think our listeners who are working in safety could reflect, as I've done, you know, how many incidents do we think could have occurred in our career if it wasn't for some of the work that we were doing? And by the same token, to what extent do we think that we've actually made work more successful for people in our organisation? So it's very hard. I mean, we know that you, you can never measure something that, that that hasn't happened. So it becomes very hard in, in safety because when you're trying to actually get an investment to protect against harm, what you're saying to an organisation is, I want you to certainly give me $100,000 on the chance that I may or may not reduce an incident that may or may not happen, which is a very complicated kind of trade-off for, for an organization to make when, when it's trying to trying to make decisions. I, I think this is also the practical attractiveness of safety too, is that if it could actually offer us a way of measuring positive achievements, other than just as safety work that we've done or the absence of negatives, that would be really valuable just for the business management of safety. And I think, Drew, we're getting to sort of the end of chapter three. So we're a third of the way through the book. And I think one of the challenges that we're faced with, which is a challenge that I think we're still faced with today, six years on, is that if we say that the opposite of an is the opposite of having accidents is not not having accidents, but it's work going right or being successful, which is not not having accidents. You know, what is this measure of successful work? What is this way that we would categorise something as successful? if it's not not having accidents. And I just don't think, we, we're at chapter three and we don't have an answer. Let's not give away the book, but I'll be surprised on a reread if I if I get the answer in the book. So at the end of chapter three, Holnagel has been painting a picture of current problems in safety. And by calling chapter three the current state, I think Holnagel is at least implicitly saying that most pre-existing safety management is safety one. Um, I'll just give a bit of a spoiler for chapter five. He does make this explicit. He does start name-checking authors and theories and models, and he really does think that everything that is not coming from Holnagel is safety one. I think that is not an unfair characterization of what's in the book, but I do think that it's an unfair characterization of the world for him to do that. I think it's fair to say that most safety theory, most of the way academics think about safety, does come from this safety one mindset of, you know, Safety science is about understanding the causes of accidents and safety management is about preventing those accidents. But a lot of safety practices don't draw explicitly on that theory. A lot of the things we do in organisation are not about defining a safe and unsafe world and keeping us in the safe world. 
yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, um, and we can look at a number of the practices that we do in our organizations, Drew, like uh, training or we've mentioned risk assessment already. Um, there's there's lots of things that we do in our organizations, even, even a learning team. You know, there's lots of things that we do in our organizations that we're sort of going, is this, we don't need to think of those things in the context of are they safety one or safety two. We need to think of them in the context like we always try to do on the podcast is, What's the mechanism in the organization that we're trying to influence and how is that mechanism connected to the risk that people face rather than trying to say, is this in a safety one or a safety two camp? Yeah, I think I'd disagree a little bit and say that I think risk assessment does squarely fit within that model of safety one. The risk assessment is about trying to work out what does an unsafe world look like? How could we get there? How could we prevent getting there? And I don't think that's a criticism of either safety one or risk assessment. I think that's it's an activity that is very logically consistent with a very clear theory of safety. Yeah, I think if you think about Drury, I suppose in that definition of risk assessment, I think if you fast forward to 2017 and Hol Nagel publishes a book called Safety 2 in Practice, which is about the resilient potentials. So we're talking monitor, anticipate, respond and learn. And Hol Nagel will then say that the thing about the thing we need to do is anticipate, which is specifically about anticipating future operating scenarios and things that could go wrong. And that for me is how is how is anticipation in the context of safety to in practice different from some of the risk assessment theory. No, th- th- that is very fair. I hadn't, I'd sort of forgotten about that anticipate thing. And so I, I think this is just sort of illustrating that trying to put things neatly into safety one or safety two can be difficult. And so Holnagel sort of trying to say that everything that came before is safety one and therefore that safety one owns every problem in safety, which he does tend to do a bit. It's both an unfair characterization, but it also makes it difficult to work out exactly what he means then by safety one and safety two when he's putting all of these things into the same basket. Yeah, I think what, and this is where I, I don't know how much um, how much Eric was trying to refer to safety, the practice of safety management inside organizations or the theories of safety management that, that had come before. And some of those things are very different. And we know we talk about that with Heinrich, we talk about that with um, with the Swiss cheese model and 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 how industry has is applying some of those ideas is not anywhere near what the authors intended or not even anywhere near what the model what the what the theory or the model is actually or the empirical findings are actually suggesting that organizations should do with those ideas and I think I got the impression that he was vaguely implying that he was sort of characterizing the practice in modern organizations and any time where we're measuring harm trying to understand the causes and then coming up with solutions that practice that's sort of like consistent across industry is where this idea of lumping everything that's happening as safety one in his view is coming from that worldview. Okay, so so let's take that and have a look at chapter four, because chapter four is very much about trying to justify the shift to safety two by pointing out all of the problems with safety one. The chapter is called the myths of safety one, and it's neatly laid out as sort of four separate ideas. And Holnagel both presents the ideas and criticizes the ideas. Yeah, that's why he's, la- he's labeling each one as a myth because he doesn't agree with it. The, the first one is, he calls it the causality credo. And it's got three steps. The first one is things that go right and things that go wrong have different causes. Second one is that the causes of adverse outcomes, so the things that go wrong, can be known and neutralized. And the third one is that since all of the bad outcomes have causes, and all of those causes can be known and neutralized, then all accidents can be prevented. And he links that to the vision of zero accidents. Um, Holnagel suggests that most models of accidents fit into that way of looking at causes. And he says that that applies both to sequential models, 
which are just like domino lines of causes. This causes that, causes that, causes the accident. And that it also applies as to any sort of epidemiological model, uh, which is the phrase he applies to where there are like complex combinations of causes. So he would put the Swiss cheese model and even Nancy Leveson's stamp as a type of epidemiological model. Yeah, I was surprised on rereading. I hadn't picked that up in the in my I hadn't recalled that from my first reading. But yeah, so models about stamp and cast and axiomap and and some of all of these other pretty much any accident model, uh, Holnagel suggesting is it just basically not a good thing to do to try to model accidents or try to try to maybe model work. Um, Fram doesn't get a mention here, but this might be a year, this might be a year before the Fram book. But it's interesting that's that's been absent um, from the from the book so far. David, I don't know if you noticed, but Holnagel, he actually said that there are three types of accident model altogether, and that two of the types of accident models subscribe to the credo. The third type of model, he says, are systemic models of accidents, but he doesn't give an example. And my immediate thought was, you know, what would a systemic model look like? Oh, that would look like Stamp. But then later on, he specifically says that no, Stamp is one of the things that he counts as a epidemiological model. Yeah, he does definitely think that there are types of accident model that don't fit this but he doesn't give any examples of them. So this accident model causality credo is is important for theory of safety two and, and the ideas of safety one and safety two. But we're going to pause, Drew. We're going to keep talking about more myths. I might let you continue to talk about some of these other myths. Okay, so the second myth he talks about is Heinrich's pyramid model of accidents. David, I don't know how much we need to go into it here, but it's this broad idea that for every 300 um, unsafe acts, you have 30 incidents you for which you have you know, three minor injuries which you have one fatality and sometimes people read like very specific ratios into Heinrich's work I found this bit of the book quite confusing because Heinrich doesn't actually believe in the causality credo um, now you talked to Carsten Bush doing a history of this so I'd be interested in uh, your thoughts on Carsten's thoughts on this but my understanding is that Heinrich says that success and failure are just different outcomes from the same causes with different probabilities that's the whole point of Heinrich's ratios. So Heinrich's saying that, you know, the same condition could sometimes lead to no problem at all, could sometimes lead to a minor injury, could sometimes lead to a major injury, could sometimes lead to a fatality. And that's why we should focus on the unsafe conditions and the unsafe acts instead of the outcomes, because you know, each one could lead to all of these different outcomes. Yeah, I think in my, in my recall of the conversation with Carsten, that's a fair representation. I don't think Heinrich made any claims that these ratios move in lockstep it was an observation that was made through analysis of a set of data that's something that might be useful for how we think about safety 90 years ago. So we, I don't think our listeners will all be familiar with Heinrich, but it gets a, it gets a, gets a Guernsey in this, in this book as saying, here's one of the myths of safety one, that we have these ratios and that these ratios become predictive. And Holnug is saying, look, that's, that's a myth. And I think um, how industry is applying Heinrich's work is, is probably a fair, fair thing for Holnug to say. Yeah, it's a bit confusing because Holnagel's careful to say that Heinrich didn't say this. It's a misinterpretation of Heinrich to apply the ratios. So he's sort of talking about why the misinterpretation of this 1920s idea needs to be debunked. And as far as I can understand, in terms of actual sort of argument, we're back where we started. You know, he hasn't actually proved anything by debunking a misinterpretation of an idea that he agrees with. So the third and the fourth myths are a little bit related, Drew, and I might just um, move through them. So the third myth is this idea that 90% of accidents are caused by human error. And 
book kind of says that, look, it could be 90% of accidents. It could be 96% are caused by behavior. It could be, but he said there's thousands and thousands of citations and commentary about just the, the extremely large proportion of accidents that are caused by human error. And I think we don't need to talk too much necessarily now about about human error, but Eric's basically claiming that, yeah, there was a person involved and, and yeah, they were, they were directly connected to the outcome, but saying that 90% of accidents are caused by human error is probably um, not a good thing for us to think in terms of safety. And I think, Drew, before I get your comments, the, the fourth miss is there is, is an extension of that, that this idea of hunting for root causes. And the message here is really just that it's always problematic to oversimplify the causes of accidents. And Eric actually goes a little bit further to sort of talk about um, in, in chapter five, which we'll talk about soon, in that any pursuit of causes is a is following a safety one worldview. So overall, this chapter needs to, I think, be read into the context of Holnagel considers that everything that has gone before is safety one. He's so safety one, even though he's given a definition, it's a definition that he thinks embraces all of current safety practice at the time that he wrote, and so. I think it's probably fair from his point of view to say, okay, if all of current safety practice comes from safety one thinking, then all of these problems that we see are the result of this thinking. I, I don't personally quite like that way of making an argument. I, I think it's a good way of offending people who it lumps together a whole heap of different practices that have different theoretical conceptualizations, ranging from people who are strong believers in Heinrich to people who've never heard of Heinrich. He puts together all as safety one. Um, but the problems themselves, I think, are real and fair to point out. Yeah, I think, Drew, that's was, that was sort of the comment that I, was, that I was going to make. I think that the arguments could be better constructed in the book. But if we think about what Eric's trying to say, saying up until now, the way that we've thought about safety is about preventing incidents. And the way to do this is to find problems in our business and fix them. And all safety theories that have come before safety two has come with that worldview. Doesn't matter how elaborate it is, it's all about this, um, which is we talked about reactive and all of these ways of thinking about safety management. And so in Eric's mind, at that level of abstraction, he's lumped all of this, these things together. Now, at the time, like if we think about how the decade before this book was was written, how industry was approaching the management of safety, I think these four myths or the the problems are really useful, like to tell organizations that look, normal work and work involving accidents are not vastly different that minor injuries and fatalities move up and down and they don't move in in step with each other and that human behaviour is shaped by organisational factors and that there's no silver bullet for solving any safety incidents and problems. If those are the kind of the high level messages from these four um, debunking these four myths, then I think that becomes very practically useful. But the way that we bounce between theory and practice and generalisations and oversimplification, it makes it, like I said earlier, really nice and easy reading but when we get underneath it, it, it creates some problematic arguments. So I, I think this bit is also... Uh, listeners might be familiar that Nancy Levison published a piece called... Uh, I think it was called Safety 3, that was a sort of step-by-step -step, um, criticism or attack on Safety 1 and Safety 2. And I think one of the valid points that she makes is that Holnagel isn't making a strong distinction between quite different safety practices. So you've got engineering practices that are very much focused on doing risk assessment in advance and designing systems with a view that those systems never end up being unsafe or are capable of gracefully dealing with difficult circumstances. And then you've got businesses doing frontline work who are strong believers in zero harm, Heinrich, identifying and stamping out unsafe acts. 
Um, and to treat those all together is obviously going to seem very unfair, and it's going to be unclear just how much the ideas apply to the different safety practices. So, Drew, we're going to we'll talk about Chapter Five, and that where I suppose the easy reading stops a little bit, at least in my experience, because we get into some fairly um, deep, at least deeply academic words, and I'm going to let you do some of the pronunciation of some of those words as we as we move through. But it, what he's really trying to do in, in Chapter 5 is, is promising now, it, I'm going to do a more formal and systematic analysis of Safety 1. And then so he goes, I'm going to de deconstruct Safety 1. And he talks about deconstruction and decomposition and what deconstruction means and, and, and then kind of says, well, I'm not actually going to deconstruct it, but I'm actually just going to break it down and, and, and look at some of the arguments. So, yeah, I guess this is sort of warning for readers of this chapter. This is most where Holnagel starts to use words away from their accepted meaning. So there's a style of writing where he says he's going to do deconstruction, and then he explains what deconstruction is and gives a bit of the sort of philosophical history of deconstruction, and then says, yeah, but actually I'm not going to do deconstruction in that sense. I'm going to do something else. Um, and he does the same thing with some quite sophisticated words like phenomenology, He's not actually doing phenomenology. Aetiology, he's not actually doing aetiology. Ontology, he's not actually doing ontology. And so for readers who are unfamiliar with those terms, it sounds very, very technical in Chapter 5. For readers who are familiar with those terms, it sounds really, really confusing when Hol Holnagel makes these promises with the terms that he uses and then doesn't actually live up to those promises in what he delivers. And it makes it sort of hard to be fair to what he actually does say because he does make some very valid points here just under some very confusing language. Uh, so by phenomenology, Holnagel's really just talking about the way we measure safety. Uh, so he doesn't say a lot more in this chapter than previously, just that we measure safety under safety one by measuring the things that go wrong and by then considering the absence of those things as safety. Uh, by aetiology, Holnagel says safety one is intrinsically linked to linear accident models. I should point out here that by this point, I'm fairly sure that the word linear is one of the words that Holnagel has redefined. So he includes Aximap and Stamp as examples of linear models. And Holnagel is the only person, only academic even, that I know who would consider Stamp to be a linear model. I think Drew, he's just, he's just referring to, you know, in his view, it's any model that tries to define cause and effect is a, or, or you know, a, a, a reliable cause and effect. Um, he sort of sees that as linear. Yes, which is what had me confused, because STAMP is not actually a causal model. It's a model of feedback in a system, which to an engineer, by definition, a system with feedback is a nonlinear system. Um, so, yeah, I think it's the way he's using that word, I think, would be very confusing to any sort of reader with an engineering background. But it becomes fairly clear going into this chapter that Holnagel is actually making a very deep and important point. And it really forces people to either agree with him or disagree with him, which I think is a very useful thing to do rather than giving sort of truisms that everyone could agree with. So Holnagel gets to the point where he's saying that if you think that the causes of accidents are knowable, then that's really safety one. Because he says, if you think that the causes are knowable and you think you can go out and find those causes and you think that by finding those causes you can prevent accidents, that is clearly safety one thinking about how the world works. And Holnagel claims that in the modern world, for lots of systems, he doesn't say all, he says there are still some systems that safety one works for. But for most systems, it's so hard to find the cause-effect relationships that they might as well not exist. That, you know, it's a futile thing to try to explain an accident by 
this is what caused the accident in any sense. So whether you are someone creating a domino theory, this causes that, or whether you're someone as sophisticated as Levison creating these big models of control and feedback and constraint, he says any of those attempts are futile with modern complex systems. Um, and I love it when an author makes a strong position like that, that you sort of have to agree or disagree with. You can't just nod along. Yeah, and I think, Drew, it's also hard not to agree because I think a lot of our complexity science and and lots of the academic work that come before it have talked about the complexity of our systems. And and so I think this idea that if you if you've if you've defined safety one as when you look for problems and causes of those problems and try to fix it, and then you can say that our systems aren't that simple, then it's um, creating an obvious need for a complementary approach, which which Holnagel was talking about safety too. So I, I still find that it's, it's a strong point, but it's also a, in 2014, it's still a very hard point to disagree that, you know, all accidents, we can identify the cause and fix them because otherwise, you know, we wouldn't be 60 episodes into a podcast. David, this might be where I'm getting hung up on Holnagel's language. Um, because he says clearly he's talking about ontology. And ontology is about what is and isn't in the world. It's about what categories are valid. And if he's making an ontological point, he's literally claiming that cause and effect don't exist. And yeah, I, I absolutely cannot accept that. I find that not just hard, easy to agree with, but impossible to agree with. Because if that was genuinely true at a fundamental level, then we couldn't influence the likelihood of accidents happening. The whole project of safety as a science and as a mission in the world would be futile. I, I think there's a alternate way of reading it, which requires us to assume that Holnagel is actually misusing his language, but hopefully is a more charitable reading. Is I think he's talking about epistemology, not about ontology. He's not saying that cause and effect don't exist, just that for all practical purposes, it's futile to go out and try to hunt and explain those causes. There are better things that we can be doing, that that hunt is going to lead us more often into error than it is to lead us into truth. So with that sort of reinterpretation of the language, that it's about sort of what is knowable and achievable rather than what is, I'm much more comfortable with it. Yeah, I think, Drew, because he does use some examples in the book, which I, I didn't didn't sit that well with me. He talked, I think, when he was talking about modern complex technology, he was talking about batteries and typewriters. And like I said, um, I'm not, no engineer, but, you know, I think they're bad examples because they're quite closed technical systems. So I'm not an engineer, but these are just, these are clearly complicated systems, not complex. I mean, we can get a typewriter, even a modern laptop and a bat or, or a battery. We can deconstruct it. We can look at it. We can understand how it works, how it doesn't work. You know, it, it may work or it may not work, but certain, but the uh, the components within that are not radically going to behave differently um, on different days. So I think uh, I'm not sure that some of the examples that are being used here um, make the point. I, I think there's a particular own goal here in that the batteries Holnagel is talking about are the Boeing 787 lithium battery fires. And at the time that Holnagel wrote this, the causes of those fires were not fully understood. And so Boeing was taking a precautionary approach, sort of trying to close off all possible causes of the fires, rather than saying, oh, they definitely happened because of this cause. There were multiple fires after that. We know what was wrong with the batteries. We know what was wrong with the manufacturing processes. We know what was wrong with the inspection processes. So, you know, that very example is more one about what is reasonably achievable rather than one about what is fundamentally a cause or not a cause. But you do end up in a double loop here, Drew, just when you talk about that example of battery failures, because if you look at something as complex as an aeroplane and you look at some of the the arguments to date in this book about safety too, is like looking at successful work. So those batteries were manufactured, they 
passed a test. They got installed in an aeroplane and that aeroplane flies well for um, for 15 or 20 or, or 30,000 hours. It's really hard to know how safety to some, some of the ideas. And I think this is why Eric's only ever stated and industry's kind of misunderstood at times that safety two is complementary to safety one because I still I still don't live in a world where I don't think we should try to actually search out for problems. So so hold hold that thought, David, because I'm not certain that that position is actually the position that gets made in this book. Yeah, we've, we've just had a pretty strong claim that safety one is literally impossible for a lot of modern systems and that we need to therefore, sorry, we haven't actually got to the point of saying that we need to replace it. But the idea that the two is complementary is an idea that evolved after this particular book and I think is inconsistent with some of the theory clearly espoused in the book. But um, yeah, so we've got this fundamental point here. And, and I guess I should point out that I don't agree with Holnagel's reasoning, but I absolutely agree with the fact that most of our investigations are not nearly as productive as we would like them to be. I would tend to ascribe that to social reasons rather than fundamental ontological limitations. But yeah, I think it's a fair point that as technology becomes more and more complex, it becomes harder and harder to pin accidents down to specific causes. And that gets much more true when we move away from technology and start talking about organizational causes of accidents. But I'm going to go out on a limb and... I reckon, David, that you and I did a much better job of laying out our phenomenology, etiology, and ontology when we wrote our safety work versus the safety of work paper. I think that's actually a clearer description of the underlying categories and reasoning that you can build safety to on top of than what Holnagel has provided in this book. He's mainly built it on top of a criticism of the way things are currently happening. Um, and that sort of criticism of the old to explain the new, I think, is never a as firm a foundation as clearly explaining what your sort of underlying ideas and principles are and then building on top of them. Yeah, and I think Drew, I think this is one caution maybe for listeners is that um is that a book a book is setting out to achieve something and it's setting out to argue something and it's not subject to peer review. And even now it's not even subject to a publishing house house approving it. You can self-publish a book. Any of our listeners can write and self-publish anything they want. It's just a good lesson that anything that's not peer reviewed, we actually should be taking the time that we're taking over these three episodes to really break it apart and say, you know, what parts of it should we take forward and and what parts of it are are, you know, an argument that satisfies the needs of the overall, you know, intention of the book. So, so what do we have here by the time we've got to the end of chapter five? I think we've got some really important stuff. Holnagel's pointed out some serious problems with traditional conceptions of safety. At the very least, he's shown that we often don't think clearly enough about what it is we mean by safety and how we're using safety, our understanding of safety to build our safety practices. And it's worth being a bit explicit about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, he's shown that the way we define and measure safety can be a real problem. He's shown that taking an oversimplified view of accident causes can be a real problem. Uh, he hasn't really clearly explained his own position and alternative yet, except that he has clearly rejected the idea that accident causes are knowable, particularly for modern systems. So he clearly wants to reject the idea that managing safety by trying to identify and control the causes of accidents is a good idea. He, he, want, he clearly wants us to put that to one side and find a new way to manage safety that doesn't rely on this excessive focus on simple causes of accidents, prevent those causes from occurring. So do we want to kick off a couple of practical takeaways now for um, chapters three, four, and five? So if you haven't encountered them before, just sort of reading through the vibe of chapters three, four, and five, Holnagel goes over a lot of ideas that might be familiar to some safety scientists and safety practitioners, 
but you know everyone's got to encounter these ideas for the first time somewhere um and so i don't want to say that you know if you haven't encountered these ideas before you're ignorant or that holnagel is wrong for repeating and explaining the ideas i think you'd get a lot of similar messages to these in uh decker's work decker actually repeats a lot of these ideas each time he writes he um, gives different explanations of quite similar ideas but yeah, certainly the, this is one set of those explanations of these sort of underlying fundamental ideas about how to think clearly about the way safety works. Yeah, some of these things that we talk about, that, that not we, sorry, we've talked about on the podcast, but um, Eric talks about here, these, this idea of, of causality, this idea of you know human factors, this idea of um, relationships between different types of incidents and, and things and accidents versus kind of, you know, successful work. And, you know, these things are very... Yeah, these these are day to day thoughts and conversations of of safety practitioners today, and 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 points of research for safety scientists. So, you know, I don't think it's fair to to look at something in two thousand and fourteen and say that this is how this is how this all works, because I think there's a lot of work that's come since on on all of these areas. But like you said, Drew, it's a good it's um you know it's, it's an easy read through some of these ideas. Second thing I thought was an interesting takeaway is that. Holnagel makes a really nice argument that Heinrich didn't believe in Heinrich, at least not the way most people interpret Heinrich, which I, th I think that sort of sophisticated understanding, it's worth reading for anyone who believes in things like the pyramid or the idea that 90% of accidents are human error. But I also think it's a nice little reminder to people who like to just sort of casually say, oh, you know, Heinrich as like a label that we can apply on old dumb ideas in safety. I think through you know having a sort of personally a, a very good professional and personal relationship with with Eric, I think as he would say, you know something like safety one and safety two, he really wanted to talk about a new way. And, but to talk about the distinction, in the new way, sometimes you have to characterise the the thing that you are trying to distinguish against. I mean, we see it with safety differently, and we talk about you know different from what. And I think this this safety safety two and safety one, I think Eric would would say now that that this lumping a lot of things together is is probably not fair is probably not accurate is is probably confusing and probably not the right thing to do but when you're coming up with some of these ideas like safety work versus the safety of work or safety one and safety two you never expect some of these things to be part of common language and then sometimes down the track you start cringing i think jim reason felt the need to write numerous publications trying to clarify his position on Swiss cheese. And I just, I think that um, we need to look underneath these arguments and we need to make sure that we paint out what's being said, but also not necessarily, not necessarily get too hung up on these really broad sweeping applications of language. Yes. On the one side, you could think of it as poetic justice that Hellnagel treated all of this stuff lumped together as safety one. And now Hellnagel's idea, safety two gets lumped together with lots of other ideas that are really not the same thing. But on the other hand, we could just say, let, let's all agree not to do that. Let, let's try to explain our own ideas clearly rather than always in contrast to unfair depictions of other people's ideas. And I, I look forward to hoping that in some of these chapters we're coming up that Holnagel presents his own sort of positive ideas a bit more clearly. Yes, that's a bit of a glimpse into next week, part three, for the, the, the last chapters of Safety 1 and Safety 2 in our, in our three-part series. For those who are following along on LinkedIn and, and and maybe even reading the chapters along with us, and please continue to drop your ideas into into LinkedIn and and let's try to see what um, what interpretations other people make and what their conclusions are and and what else they think we could um, we could address because as ideas fall out of these these episodes, I think Drew, there's going to be specific ideas and issues that uh, we can then add to the queue for future 
future episodes. So that's it for this week. Join us on LinkedIn. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 